0: Welcome to Your Bible, custom designed to your Bible reading plan with weekly podcast by myself, Chris Case, pastor of Resonate Church. And I'm here with Sarah Pasquale, our executive director.
1: Hey, everybody.
0: And so you had four different books to have to read through in the Old Testament, and luckily just one in the New, but uh, jumping through multiple uh, prophets as well as a book that uh, sometimes can be cross labeled between prophets and uh, wisdom literature in uh, The End of Lamentations. And so uh, we'll just do that last chapter uh, and then we'll move through the three prophets that we got started this week and so the last chapter of limitations once again just includes uh stuff we've already encountered in this letter that the, that Israel has been brought low, lower than all the nations around them and they're essentially like slaves um, and in the process at least people have come to terms that the sin is constant and this is where uh, I think the process of the lament that I kind of brought up last um, last week's podcast like uh, we kind of see it play out a little bit like the question still remains that the question that was in the opening chapter is essentially in the, in the closing chapter like God why, why are you doing this uh, but now at least the author of the lament here it's kind of come full cycle and it's been like but you're on your throne god and mm-hmm. uh, we're just asking you to renew and restore us and so there seems to have been a slightly different finale than how they answered how the question got processed in the opening chapter
1: yeah, it seems to me the authors still really fully acknowledge God's sovereign work. Um, they they can't get themselves out of this grief, and they're begging God to deliver them. It's almost a community play. Uh, and I think this chapter is really similar to chapter 1, like we talked about a chiasm here, in reflecting the destruction, but there is something about a hope here that comes from, from confession of sin and a belief in restoration. And I think we can also find peace and hope when we acknowledge our own standing before God. Prior to salvation, we were like the nation of Jerusalem or the nation of Israel, but because of Christ's atoning work for all time, we can stand righteous and pure before God. So we know that he has restored us to himself um, and won't utterly or forever reject those who receive him.
0: Yeah, and so any final thoughts on this book?
1: Well, it's not an easy book for me personally to read. I struggle with, I just don't like to feel bad feelings. Not that anyone does. But it was really cool to read this book within different contexts. Um, Of course, reading it as the original audience would have read it and experienced it. Uh, But I... Also really enjoyed reading it from the perspective of, of Jesus and imagine him praying all those things in his last days and hours on earth. And that was really moving to me, knowing that he suffered even greater ways than Jer- Jerusalem and not because of his own sin, but because of, of my sin and everyone else's sin gave me a new lens or new perspective in reading the book of Lamentations.
0: Yeah. The the book sort of functions, um, the one way I've thought about, um, wisdom style literature is that like sometimes they become like tool belts as you sort of walk through faith. And this book sort of, um, I think gave, gave language and permission and, um, ways to approach God in the midst of like the raw emotions of sadness and hurt and despair, um, and questioning of God and what he's doing. And, um, I really appreciate that scripture gives like these, these, pictures of of going because not all faith systems do Uh, and um, there, there are others who be like this is an inappropriate way to like pray and it's like no like the Bible the God of the universe is, is saying like, I, I'm okay with you bringing these things to me. Um, but we also have been given this tool to, to kind of go through like where we come and, and have our raw emotions, but then kind of walk through the book and then take the breath, remember who God is. And even remembering the, our own culpability that might be tied into suffering and sin and disobedience. And so, um, and then kind of walking back through that on the back end and, and saying like, God, you're still on the throne. I don't understand this. I still feel these emotions. But but I know you're on the throne, and I know you can restore. And so, um, it's such a it's such a interesting sort of almost like a toolbook in the midst of your suffering to kind of process these things well in in ways that seem to be God honoring. Yeah. And then we get to Habakkuk, um, mm-hmm. a, a writer we know very little about, but um, we do have some guesses. And at least the mention of the Chaldeans, you do know that Babylon uh, is uh, on the doorstep sometime soon. Uh, this is sort of uh, probably late in the Assyrian. Um, Take over and the Babylon is showing up soon in the southern kingdom and so um it's very unique that this book does not um have prophecy for like a nation or a group uh, It's really Habakkuk and God having these conversations obviously applicable uh to the larger people uh, but um it 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 is more us getting to watch this prophet and God have a back and forth, yeah. And so uh, it opens with a complaint. Uh, it opens with Habakkuk sort of saying like, look, the wicked surround the righteous and justice goes forth perverted. And um, it, it's sort of he's kind of questioning like, look, God, it sort of seems like you're letting the wicked rule the righteous like this is upside down. Are you, you going to do something about it? Do you really care about wickedness? What's what's sort of your position here, God, on all this violence?
1: Habakkuk really seems to begin the book by pointing out the fallenness of humanity. We are wicked and dead in our sins. And Israel was not exempt from sin and wickedness, even though they were God's chosen people. Uh, They needed deliverance and external help to enact peace and justice. And so Habakkuk cries out to God, how long will you not save? And I think as believers, we should sometimes feel that sort of tension that Habakkuk felt differently on the side of the cross. But when was the last time that you looked around and saw sin around you and you were grieved by it? When did you cry out to God and ask him to intervene in a situation, not for your own benefit, but to bring about righteousness?
0: And then uh, God's answer, it's, it's kind of great in sort of almost a slightly comedic way but it's like Habakkuk. I I am doing something about it. And you wouldn't even believe if I told you I'm raising up a group that's even more wicked and awful in these Babylonians. And they're going to deal with y'all's violence and wickedness, and they're going to be way worse.
1: So there's your answer. Yeah, I think I had this verse like on a mirror or something like that when I was in college or when I had first come to Christ and I read it more recently and I was like, oh man, the context of this, like, (laughs) watch out, I'm going to do this amazing thing. It's all about judgment. And I didn't, you know, I read it out of context back then. Um, though I'm sure God continues to do amazing things in our lives, but I think the thing that, um, God emphasizes is like, I am at work and I'm going to do something. You're not going to, you're not going to get, and you're not going to be able to make sense of, but I am at work and I'm doing things even in impossible situations.
0: Yeah. And, and it, it, the next section the title is titled is a second complaint, but it still feels like the same complaint to me. I feel like he's like, I hear what you're saying, but you're kind of making my point. God, like, are you going to stand for this evil? Or are you just going to let evil happen? I don't understand. Like he's sort of like, you're responding with evil with a group that's even worse. Like is how can you tolerate that God? And, and he kind of ends with, and there's a lot of ways to kind of interpret maybe Habakkuk's attitude or position here. Um, I've, I have a little bit of a stubborn view of Habakkuk here of him being like up on the watchtower. He's like, I'm going to stand here and I'm going to wait. I'm just going to wait until you give me a better answer than that. Or you let me know what's going on. I want more. I want a better answer. I want more from you, God, about why you're allowing sin and suffering.
1: I think there are a couple of things that I really see in this section. And the first one is that Habakkuk rightly understands the character of God, but as we can see, he's having a really difficult time reconciling it with what Habakkuk sees in the world around him. He longs for justice to be brought to the wicked, which is right, but as created rather than creator, Habakkuk doesn't understand the full picture and he doesn't understand that he also needs saving from his wickedness. Um... I think we live in or i know we kind of live in this world right now where a lot of people are deconstructing christianity um, we're seeing so many people walk away from their faith because they struggle with the same with the same thing they can't reconcile the character of God with what they see in the world around them uh, but what we can learn from Habakkuk here is that as he faced these same questions as he faced these same issues he didn't walk away from God he leaned into God he sought questions or he sought answers to his questions and he waited for God to respond he didn't just um, Turn away and say, forget it.
0: And then there's uh, the section that it's titled The Righteous Sheltered by Faith, which is true. And God says it in the midst of that. But um, it, it's this one line of about the righteous and then a whole lot of lines about the unrighteous. And um, I think this is sort of the opening answer when Habakkuk's like, why Why are you surrounding the righteous with the wicked? God goes, well, the righteous, they, they, they live by faith. That is true of the righteous. But let's talk about the unrighteous. Let's talk about all the people causing sin and suffering. And, and it goes into a list that they're, they're puffed up, they're arrogant, they're traitors, they're greedy, they're never satisfied. And even as it moves into that whole woe to the Chaldeans, like the descriptions there, the the one who steals from others, the one who's plunder and cause bloodshed, evil gain in their own house, their empires on unjust gain, their leaders who thrive on drunkenness and sex. They have fashion idols to worship. Like... All the things that would describe the unrighteous in the story are yes, describing in some ways the Chaldeans. Absolutely, I think that it's explicit that they're Chaldeans. But I think what what the the audience should hear, particularly a Jewish audience, and what Habakkuk seems to hear, is all the things that are describing the wicked, particularly the the the, the Babylonians, are all the same language that has been used for Israel for like the past. Collection of of mm. pro- prophets who have come and said, "Israel, here's what you do: you plunder others, you have unjust gain, your leaders thrive on these things, you fashion idols for worship." And so, everything that Habakkuk just heard of, like he, God does respond to evil. Hear the Chaldeans and all their evilness. Habakkuk will, I think, hear and and take in being like, "Oh, okay, that's that's us too." Like those are accusations that should be directed at us as well.
1: Yeah, I think there's a theme here. Going back to this, the the righteous will live by faith. I think here we see that faith in God looks like waiting for His timing, and waiting for God to bring everything together. And I think as we even as we think of this passage, keep it in mind as we'll jump to talking about faith in Hebrews.
0: Yeah, and so um, I think Habakkuk's prayer is sort of coming around a little bit on that of being like. Yeah, we are guilty of injustice, but how can I point the finger at Babylon when we have the same struggles too? And it sort of um, seems to be a turn. Like it's no longer I'm going up to my watchtower to wait on God. Like God, I've, I understand now your greatness. I understand kind of maybe what you're doing here. And, and, and so God lets him in on a little bit. And then back it goes into this whole kind of metaphoric language, but almost all the metaphors throughout this whole section, there's stuff out of Genesis, there's stuff out of David and Goliath where he's pierced with his own spear, there's stuff out of Exodus. And like, there, there's all this language that that ties into some of the, the the tremendous things that God has done for his people in the midst of the unknown, in the midst of maybe even their suffering, in the midst of um, delivering them in the past. And Habakkuk sort of uses all this language. I think to kind of come back around to be like, all right, God, like it's no longer about Me waiting on the watchtower for you to give me an answer. Like, I I am, I will quietly wait now for the day of trouble because I I know you're the one who delivers. Like, you've taken care of us in the past in all these different ways. And even if Babylon comes, if that's your plan through this, it's part of our punishment and you're going to punish them at some point. Like, I know you're going to get, you're going to deliver us through that at some point. You've done it before and you're going to do it again.
1: Yeah. We see. This reminds me of so many of the Psalms we read too, where the psalmist reflects on what God has already done, God's victory over evil in the past, in order to give the, the person who's writing it hope and courage moving forward. And so the encouragement to you here is to continue in your own life to recall God's past work. As you wait for him to work and find your strength in him, even when things feel dire, sometimes it feels like God isn't working. But we've got to look back and remember what He has already done. So remember His provision in the past and trust Him to continue to provide in the future.
0: Yeah, and I, I really love how Habakkuk finishes this letter mm-hmm. and the the sort of you know what God whatever comes, even if there's no figs on the trees, there's no grapes on the vine, there's no cattle in the stalls, like you're still my salvation. Like you're still my strength and I'm, I'm willing to trust even, even if I have nothing, God, you're still enough for me. And and I think that's an important sort of finale to the, to this letter.
1: Yeah. I like how with this, like there's nothing you're left with nothingness. And then Habakkuk says, I'm going to rejoice. I'm going to take joy and I'm going to find strength in the Lord with nowhere else to go and no hope outside of God. Habakkuk willingly receives what God has planned.
0: So final thoughts,
1: yeah, so Habakkuk is in the throes of hopelessness in a lot of ways. He knows what's coming and he knows that it's going to be unbearable, uh, something that is unbelievable, according to chapter one. And I think in our in our lives, we oftentimes encourage people in struggles with, it's going to get better. But the message to Habakkuk really is like, it's going to get worse. And yet Habakkuk responds with, I will quietly wait for the day of trouble. I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God is my strength. So even when difficulty is coming... Um, And when it's difficulty that's ordained by God, Habakkuk submits to God and declares that God is his strength. It's such a good lesson for us to practice living out in our own lives.
0: Yeah. And I, and I also think I appreciated learning, um, Habakkuk as, as, as a song. Like mm-hmm. the, the Israelites end up using Habakkuk, uh, particularly like eventually the Greeks and the Romans come to town. They have their boot on the neck of, of the Israelites. And the book sort of comes away in some ways to, to process through that, uh, through song and through prayer. And, and, and that's, that's so common for, for, I mean people in general but God's people like it's the same way that that sort of the slave spiritual songs uh, existed in America as these people lived under oppression lived under suffering and and simply sang about their hope and sang in the midst of their hopelessness and so um yeah, it's, it's so, so crucial to kind of see that in the book of Habakkuk. And as I said, I really like how it ends up. And I, gosh, I hope my prayer is the same thing that Habakkuk can pray there. God, if I don't have anything, if I have you, then that's easily enough for me. And, mm-hmm. um, for, for to be in that situation and, and to be able to, I hope to, to never be without everything that I have, but to still be content, um, in, in God and God alone. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, Obadiah, as we walk into that prophet, um, yeah, we, we've seen, uh, we've seen other prophets have kind of choice words for Edom and the surrounded collection of people, but this letter has a direct, uh, attack, uh, and pointed, uh, message to the Edomites. Uh, this collection of people who are descendants of Esau, they kind of live on the, the southeastern end of, uh, Israel, kind of out in the desert. And, and essentially they're the closest relatives to the Israelites. Like, Jacob, Israel, their their namesake, it's his brother was Edom, and so, um, uh, uh, and or Esau was his brother, and so these people come from that line, and um, there are people with scarce land uh in terms of what's available there's no farmland in this area it's very rare so they make all their money off trading routes and stuff like that but it's rocky they start building their city into like cliffs and rocks uh it ends up being a, a people that are really hard to conquer because uh, it's really hard to to siege a city when your own army can't get much water and um they 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 thought of themselves as impenetrable and safe and all these kind of things in these rocky desert areas and so a lot of that imagery I think ties into this letter as well.
1: There's some neat parallels here for making connections of you have Edom and Judah, which is the present day, but you can kind of um, go back in the past to look at Esau versus Jacob, or even moving forward, Herod is actually a descendant of the Edomites. So there can be there's a connection with Herod killing boys under two and Herod approving of Christ's crucifixion. And so you can have this Esau Jacob, Edom Judah, and even just a Herod Christ sort of parallels as we breathe this yeah, short yeah, book.
0: Definitely. And so uh we see right away uh that context of understanding that Edom uh, were built into these rocky cities that they thought where they were safe in. Uh the the accusation is like you're you guys are so prideful thinking you can simply hide in these rocks and like thinking who can bring me down, like get you know who can bring you down? God's going to bring you down. And and he's he's been made upset. And so, um, and then the next section, we'll find out what he's upset about. But yeah, that's sort of the opening accusation here.
1: Yeah, there are many things that we have in our lives, or we think if we had them in our lives, it would make us feel untouchable. Edom for this. This is living in the mountains or in these rocky areas. But for many of us, it can be our bank account or our health insurance or our education or our family. But the reminder here is that God is sovereign and powerful over all things.
0: Yeah. And so the 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 accusation of really what Edom did wrong is they did uh, they're accused of doing violence against Jacob, and essentially their violence is basically watching Jacob get ransacked by by Babylon and not caring, not doing anything about it, as um, as if Jacob Jacob came running uh, asking for help, and and Edom's like. I can't help you. And then Babylon comes by and Edom's like, well, the guy went that way. And so um, they just have no concern for the need of their neighbor uh, or even brother uh, in this in this context. And so, um, yeah, God's, God's still – and there's a little bit of me wrestling through this, but God seems to still have expectations for kindness and justice, even for these non-covenantal people. I mean, these are not – they don't fall under – <clears throat> the mosaic covenant in any way and so uh, but god still has um, expectations for them and there's language of sort of escalating culpability at first they were aloof and then they started gloating and then they took pleasure and then they took advantage and then they took survivors like all of this happened um and and they acted not neighborly uh, towards israel
1: Yeah, we're seeing what happened generations after Esau resented that he gave up his birthright to his twin brother Jacob, who then became the firstborn. And we know that this was God's sovereign hand. But instead of acting in submission to God, Esau attempted to control the circumstances and bring harm to his brother. And we see Edom kind of doing the same thing. And and we think we wouldn't do that, you know, and maybe we— probably have not killed someone, but reflect on your own heart and feelings. When do you have situations where you're unhappy with how circumstances turn out and you want someone to suffer, whether that's somebody who cuts you off in traffic or um, you know, a neighbor who is, I don't know, noisy or something like that? Uh, when when are you resentful of someone that maybe is God's sovereign hand or work in your life?
0: Yeah. And within this letter to the to Edomites, we, we do find out good news for israel that jacob's going to be restored yeah. and then basically for esau there's not much hope for them right <laughs> and and what they're going to find out is that when god restores jacob jacob's going to rule over all this land uh, which explains also how herod the great uh, becomes kind of ruler at the time uh but but israel sort of takes over uh, the kingdom of of edom
1: yeah we continue to see god's harv- sovereign hand in in judging edom just as israel was judged
0: yeah so final thoughts
1: So this book causes me really to lift my eyes to Christ. I am deserving of the judgment of Edom and the judgment of Judah. And spending a little bit of time alone and even reflecting on my own thoughts makes that clear. But I get to look to Jesus Christ, the one who absorbed that punishment and wrath for me in order that I can be made right with God. And I get to live under God's sovereign rule eternally and with joy instead of becoming rebel. Um, Not because of me, but because of God.
0: Yeah, and for me, I mean, this has been... I hope it's been eye-opening as you got kind of to read through the prophets, but like one of the things that God just keeps so central in so many of these prophets is like, here's what I care about how you treat others, like particularly taking advantage of people in need. And, and I mean, and Jesus has even pointed out to, to non pointing out how even the pagans take care of their own family. And so, um, I think that God's condemnation out of Edom here is like, look, you don't even know how to take care of your brother. And, and it's a constant drumbeat for these prophets. Like, yes, idolatry is condemned throughout. Absolutely. Uh, But there's so much verbiage around justice around treatment of others. So like Mm -hmm. hallmark of here's what God cares about. Here's what his kingdom people are like. They're going to care about their neighbor and take care of them when they're in distress. And um, once again, we get another letter that like one of the main condemnations is that, Then Joel, uh, which for many is like the hardest book to date in the Old Testament. There's just not a lot of like explicit characters or time frame really laid out. Uh, There's no people group mentioned or anything like that. So it just becomes a little harder to to exactly put it. Uh, But some of the imagery I think leans towards uh this being written during the babylonian exile or like right up to it around that time um and the joel's going to use the the locust plague as a main metaphor and he's a prophet that ends up quoting a ton of other prophets throughout his letter Uh, i think there's 19 around 19 references in just the three chapters of this book
1: yeah some themes to follow are the day of the lord repentance and the promise of a future outpouring of the spirit
0: so we get the opening chapter, which is vivid. It's dark. It's intense, and the plight of Israel is compared to this locust plague. It's and, and these plagues of locusts are just like destructive, like swarms and swarms of insects. They leave. They eat up everything, and then just leave. And uh, that's why I think uh, this this is Tizen the Babylon, who comes in like a swarm and then leaves Israel pretty desolate. And and this is sort of the what's happening. This Lord, this destruction and leftover wasteland uh, of Israel that the Babylonians bring.
1: Yeah, Joel reminds readers from the very beginning that what's happening is going to create memories for generations and that we are to tell these stories to our generation. We need to communicate even God's judgment and our sin and as believers, salvation to our children in order that they may remember and know God is holy and sovereign and good and faithful.
0: But in the midst of this um, judgment, there's still the same message, like repent, like the the judgment's devouring everything, but gather the people, have a fast, do all this. Like we, we you, you need to, you need to turn, you need to or return uh, to God, like g- get right. Like here's the ways to do it. It's even laid out in Joel. Uh, and then we have to break into right in the middle of the book, which um, is hard when you got to piece some of these pieces together.
1: Yeah, one of the things he points out is that there's not going to be a green offering and there's not going to be a drink offering, but the people can still fast and cry out to the Lord. We are reminded again that God is more concerned about the heart rather than the motions.
0: Yeah, and so jumping to Hebrews, uh, just Mm -hmm. chapters 9 through 11, which are chock full of a lot of stuff, but... yeah. Uh, so we hear about the old setup and there's tents, there's priests, there's high priest, uh, even high priest sacrifices, annual day of atonement where they can go in. But all this stuff, all the practices can never really fix our conscience. Like They, they, they dealt with some of the, the purification of the flesh, which we find out in the next section, but um, it was just a temporary arrangement. It can never actually create in us a, a new inner self.
1: Yeah, they these sacrifices can deal with the external, but they can't penetrate to the heart.
0: And that's why we needed a better high priest. Like and the regular high priest went into the temple with bull blood of bulls and goats, and sure can deal with the flesh. But Jesus went into the heavenly place, and he didn't bring animals, but his own blood. and And that's a greater picture. That's a greater purification, greater sanctification, not just for flesh, like for. All of us, like, it's such a bigger picture than anything the, the high priest going into the physical tent could do. And so, Jesus' death, just like any other, like, setup, like, enacts a will and and there's sort of a new contract and a setup for the heirs like the old contract is null and void the obligations that were part of it that we have this new contract through his death this new will and and we as heirs of the promises have have a different kind of inheritance now that we didn't have before um and the author is kind of pointing all this out like this is what happens like death or bloodshed and then the enactment of a new agreement, like that's what we've known. That's what happened with Moses and that's what's happening now. That's that's why Jesus had to die. And so the bloodshed but but even better, the old one, we had to keep doing bloodshed all the time in this new, this new will, this new contract, this new covenant, like it's once and for all, like we don't need the animals anymore. Mm-hmm. He's summed up all sacrifice with his one sacrifice and the final solution of sin. And so um, when he returns, it's not to come and die again. Like that's already been dealt with. He's coming back for salvation.
1: And, One of the major emphases emphases here is that the work of Christ is free, and it is completely dependent on Christ Himself. So when we try to maybe earn salvation or acceptance or holiness through different sorts of works, we are actually minimizing Christ's work on the cross sit in the finished work of christ and receive the completely free gift of his deliverance and then the chapter ends with this promise that christ is going to come again to save those who are eagerly waiting for him and i just think this is so over the top amazing and generous after reading this passage i just like it makes me long for him to return and makes me long to see him face to face
0: yeah and, and we get a repetition of the phrase like once for all um both mm-hmm. in chapter nine and in chapter 10. And just as a reminder that like the old system was, was constant. It was like in perpetuity of, of these practices and and going to the tabernacle all the time. Like the message was, I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner. Here's the things I have to do here, are the things I have to do. And it's nonstop. But in Christ, that, perpetual systems ends like once and for all. And, and where the high priest had to constantly do the work, Jesus did the work and then he sat down, like it finished a single offering. And so what it ushered in is like the conscience actually be finally clean. Like the whole work of the tabernacle temple is done with. And now, now there's actual forgiveness of sins. There's a sense that God does not remember my sin anymore and constantly need a sacrifice. And so that brings about part of that cleansing of consciousness is is it's done once and for all. And I think that's what the author is really after, going, you gotta understand all of this finish, which he's trying to convince this very Jewish crowd. Like the tabernacle, the temple, it's done with.
1: Yeah. Put yourself for a moment in the position or in the thought world of a Jewish person. For centuries, there were sacrifices made every day to attempt to cover sin and to make us right with God. Countless animals were sacrificed, and the work of the priests never stopped for hundreds and hundreds of years. And then Jesus, this Messiah, came and did it once and for all with a single sacrifice and a single offering. What a massive shift it was for these Jews to understand the completeness of the sacrifice. And what really, like, a wild leap of faith to trust and believe that animal sacrifices are no longer required. It's amazing to think about.
0: Yeah. And so... I think the argument is to like think of the greater promise now. Like we had the tabernacle and priests and the high priests and all these kind of things, but, but we have something greater in Jesus as our high priest. Like, and, and we have now God's presence. Like they, we just had to trust that the priest went in and, and represented us. But like now through Jesus's body, like his body is this like torn curtain. That's sort of the metaphor that's used there. And, and we, we get to go in. Like mm. we get to be like the high priest because Jesus was our high priest, like clean nothing needed to offer. Like it's all been done. And the encouragement to, to this crowd in the midst of that is, is to not go back to the old ways. And mm-hmm. maybe they'd be enticed and going back to things. And, and there is some enticement of going like clearly like here are the things I have to do to make myself right. Um, as opposed to just trusting in the radical nature of grace and and the writers, like hold fast this confession. Let's keep going. Let's not forget to meet together. Let's encourage each other. This let's live it out. Um, let's have this steadfast faith. That's sort of the the drive here. And like, we can't just give up on Christ and go back to the old way. Like let's push on. Like there's even if, if, if giving up on the Mosaic covenant was bad, like how much more that Jesus is ushering in this new thing. If we gave up on it, like that, that, that can be even more dangerous. And so let's keep going. Think of the old days like you used to persevere so well in the face of suffering and like you walked through those trials with confidence. So let's keep going into that. Endure.
1: Don't shrink back. Yeah. So so we know we're cleansed and saved, but we are still going to face struggles. And so as we struggle, the author of Hebrews reminds us that we can struggle with joy because we know there is a better possession, a heavenly possession waiting for us. And not only this, but we must consider how we can also motivate others to reflect the salvation and atonement of Christ. This is expressed in love for God and others, and it's gonna overflow into our work and our behavior. And again, we're warned by the author, like we've seen a lot of warnings throughout the book of Hebrews, that if we're not meeting together and if we're not encouraging one another, it's really, really easy to fall away. So this is a warning to you to make sure that you are in a regular Christian community and also an exhortation as a believer to encourage others to do the same.
0: Yeah. And so what does this enduring faith look like? Well, what is not shrinking back, walking this out? Like, the author's like, we know what this looks like. This is the story of our people. Like this has always been a story of walking out by faith. And, and the, the, we we heard the story through Abel or Enoch or Noah or Abraham, like stories of faith. And there's a particular emphasis as he, as the author gets into all the examples of, of the way people walked it out, trusting God along the way, even though they might not have seen what's next, they might not have ever really seen the promise come to fruition. And um, I always think of in some of these sort of pictures of like walking by, by, by faith and not by sight, that, that sort of idea of like, a, like a sheep and a shepherd, like. I feel like I've talked about this before, but like um, in, very, in very Middle Eastern shepherding, like the sheep are out front and they actually hear the the, the the shepherd speak behind them and direct them. And and there's just trust. It's not blind trust. I mean, they can see around them, but there's trust in the goodness of the shepherd, like in the midst of rocky wadis that they're wandering through, trusting that shepherd will lead them to the eventual water or food, trusting the shepherd knows where he's going, trusting the shepherd will protect them uh, from, from death. And I think the metaphor would be spiritual death. Like that's the picture of faith. It's to go, all right, I can't see around the next corner and I'm a sheep, but I trust my shepherd to bring me to, to, to where I need to go. And and I think it's even great that the author includes like in this whole list of people that have just trusted God by faith, like those who are suffering or persecuted, people that were sawed in half and all this kind of um, more more graphic. It wasn't just people like Abraham and others. Like it, it, it even plays up those who have suffered and, and and died probably from from their faith and and yet yeah, goes like that that still is walking out by faith too.
1: So Here we see that faith is the distinctive mark of Old Covenant followers and also New Covenant believers as we look forward to our heavenly country. And for those of us who are living where we are now and and the people who are reading or listening to this letter to the Hebrews, we can look back at the faith of others and see a theme of trusting God for what they had hoped for but had not yet seen or experienced. I think it's also worth noting here that faith and belief are really kind of two different things. Faith is a gift from God. Um, Unlike belief, it's not a choice. Choice, but the fruit of actions is a gift from God. So the Christian life is one of faith and trust, and our focus must be on heaven when God will make all things right. And just like all these people we read about, we are to consider our sufferings in this world as more precious than any earthly wealth, looking steadily at our ultimate reward. So this means thinking about heaven, dreaming about heaven, studying about heaven, and longing for it.
0: Yep. So uh, Psalm 13.
1: So I think, again, coming back to lament, this is a great picture of lament and resolution to trust. God permits and even welcomes our reverent complaint in order to draw us to greater faith in him. The hard work here, though, isn't the complaint, but the resolution to continue trusting God and singing to him despite. Our struggles,
0: yeah. It's, I mean, it's a very clear psalm of transition where it starts with just discouragement, despair, and David wraps it up with trust, joy, encouragement, all, all those sort of pieces. Uh, Psalm 27,
1: yeah, an emphasis on the blessings of God's presence. I think we see how God is light in dark places and confidence, not fear, protection, strength, and courage. I really like this psalm.
0: Yeah, and and once again, this also feels like a bit of a dichotomy of a of a psalm, because uh, the first half first half really feels about because uh, David's desire for God's presence, and I mean, I, I really appreciate even David's language here. Like David is the king; he has so many things that he could be seeking like oh, I seek peace or I seek you to solve these problems with the nation, all this kind of stuff. And and he goes, here's the one thing. Like if I were to go after just one thing, here it is to, to, to see you. And, um, that's the most essential thing. And, and the second half kind of, uh, is an appeal to for God not to abandon him in the midst of this, to stay close. And then Psalm 46,
1: so it starts out with saying, "The Lord is our refuge and strength, and a very present help in trouble." And I just think Jesus is the personification of this psalm. You can read the whole thing and realize that Jesus does all of these things.
0: Yeah, uh, apparently this was one of Martin Luther's favorite of all psalms. I, but he was also a paranoid individual who's always worried about safety and so uh <laughs> god's protection becomes a, a a big theme for him but um yeah there's just this declaration of god being god being with present here with us and and there's even a global scope to that uh, in the language of the psalm that that yeah god i want you to be present but i also want that to, to transform into the nations and how how that affects the nations that they would know you in the midst of that mm-hmm. next week
1: so, in the Old Testament, spend some time thinking about the day of the Lord. We've talked about it a lot, but how do you feel about God's judgment? We've spent time in it, but this concept continues to be difficult to grasp for those of us who've lived in so much comfort. So, and as you think about the day of the Lord, think about other worldviews or people groups and how they may feel about God's judgment, both in what we read in Scripture and also in the final judgment. And I think it'll help us as we get ready for Ezekiel. And in the New Testament, as you wrap up Hebrews, spend some time flipping back through the book. Write out in your own words why Jesus is. Is a better sacrifice a better priest a better moses or a better abraham i know this takes extra time but this sort of act of learning helps us to see and understand even more of scripture and how amazing god is
0: yeah uh for the old testament as i said before there's a bit of a theological crisis for the israelites from basically from sinai and now till babylon there was always a sense of like god with us like tabernacle temple all this kind of stuff like they knew where god was um but what happens now? The temple's been destroyed. It's been ransacked. The Ark is disappeared. It probably is never going to be seen again. Where where is God? Like, what should worship look like? Do we do sacrifices? Is God with us anymore? All that sort of important questions. And as we get into the prophet Ezekiel, who's not going to be the easiest to read through. But as we get through the prophet Ezekiel, um, I think sort of even in the, sort of the intro, a couple chapters, I think there's some messaging from from God through Ezekiel to the people of saying, all right. You want to know where I am? Like, here's a message. And um, then uh, as we get to the New Testament, as we read the sort of almost the next section of Hebrews, uh, the writer gets into basically a sports metaphor in some ways and a world super familiar with Greco-Roman sports, people um, would compete to showcase what their patron gods are like. Um, As the author picks up on this metaphor, like almost think about it, like almost imagine the picture for yourself of crowds and cheering on and those in the faith, whether it's those from the previous chapter or even people that have gone before you that have helped shape your own faith life. Like as you read through it, almost have this and maybe the author meant it this way. It's like the close your eyes to imagine others who have gone before us, cheering us on um, to persevere, to keep going, like, personalize some of the imagery um, and I think that'll make that much more richness to the text as you read through it Um, yeah and that's it for us this week thanks
1: thanks